Yeah, Vaughn? Episode 11. These go to 11. <laughs> this show does go to 11. This show goes to 11. Yeah. It most certainly does. It could so, go to 11 today, don't you think? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Today's going to be a, an interesting one. And I would like to formally introduce, you know, we've talked about having guests on the old podcast here. Um, and we figured now that we were 10 episodes in, you know, that it's time to bring on a guest. And I think we'll do this from time to time. We figured there would be no better uh, resident expert for our first ever guest on the podcast. I don't think people understand the amount of musical expertise that we are bringing in tonight with our special guest. I mean, this, oh, huge. this is somebody who has been really through the ins and outs of uh, of music listening for for a very long time now. He brings tremendous credibility. Oh, did you talk about credibility, Clay? Why don't you say hello? And if there's anything you want to tell the audience uh, about yourself, or just introduce yourself. Um, hello, guys, and it's my first time on the podcast. I can't wait, can't wait to talk about the Foo Fighters with you guys today. Yeah. So, uh, my almost eight year old son. Clay, who loves the Foo Fighters. So Clay is here and and we're going to be talking about the Foo Fighters, the color and the shape. And I can honestly say, you know, Nubs has two daughters about similar age. Clearly, many of you can tell from listening to us that one of the goals is going to be to indoctrinate these young minds into really good music. And I think we can honestly say, I mean, would you say Clay that the Foo Fighters are really your favorite band and kind of your first favorite rock and roll band? Yes. Um, Tof, that's exactly right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think um, it's more than indoctrinate. I think we're, I think we're both intentionally out to just straight up brainwash our kids. I mean, yeah, if, they, yeah. if they're not, if they don't listen to quality rock music um then we've done something wrong as parents i would completely agree something drastically wrong and so we listened to some good um the clay i want i wasn't sure if you wanted to note in addition to the food fighters are there any other bands that you like rock and roll bands that you like that we you know listen to regularly that you wanted to mention uh yes so there is the food fighters that you already know of nirvana no Nirvana, the band where um, all of this thing started, and this Nirvana didn't exist, also Foo Fighters wouldn't exist because of the one, the only, Dave Grohl! <laughs> that didn't come out right. No, that was good. That was good. So, okay. And so any other bands you can think of, or are those, any other rock and um, roll bands? So I like dig Oasis and Tool and stuff. You and dig Oasis and Tool, nice. Yeah. Nice. So, what do you like about Tool? 
Well, I like that it's like heavy rock music and... And what about Oasis? What do you like about Oasis? Well, they have all these like good songs like Don't make me You really won't make me <laughs> Okay. All right, cool. So... So Clay, you would say that we listen to some good rock and roll together and, and nubs, like you said, and, and I know you're doing the same at home, important to indoctrinate early. So we're going to be talking about a Foo Fighters album that was really when you realized they were going to be here to stay for a very long time. But before we get to that, let's go round and round. So this is the part where we find out what Uncle Nubs is listening to. Why don't you ask Uncle Nick what's been on his uh, his musical radar lately? Yeah, what's, yeah, Nick, what's been what's on your musical radar? Well, thank you, Clay. I, I Clay, I'm guessing you've never heard of the music genre commonly known as Nuwabam. Tof, do you know what Nuwabam is? <laughs> I'm not sure his dad has heard of this genre. <laughs> So Nuwabam stands for New Wave of British Heavy Metal. It refers to heavy metal bands uh, from Britain in the early 80s that sort of pioneered kind of a lot of modern metal that we know of. And one of the bands that's round around for me right now is Saxon, the first album by this real metal pioneer. And they're considered one of the core bands of the Nuwabam genre. It's the dumbest name genre ever, right? Like who wants to walk around... Right, yeah, is that right, Clay? New Weber. <laughs> yeah, but it stands for New Wave of British Heavy Metal, and so this first Saxon album, which is very good, that's uh, that's been on my turntable quite a bit lately. I just recently got a copy, an album called The Mirror by Spooky Tooth, who is um, Spooky Tooth is the band that Gary Wright was in before he went on to do Dreamweaver and yes. some of those solo things that he did, and kind of a kind of a more hard rock sort of deal. I'm a huge Gary Wright fan. In fact, that Dreamweaver album might be one that we want to do at some point because the very underrated album from sort of a one-hit wonder artist, but The Mirror by Spooky Tooth, one of the great album packages of all time and a really rocking good time album. And then lastly, T, this one's going to be close to your heart. Uh, the album is Watermark. And the artist ah, is Enya. Yes. So I recently landed online, of course, because during the pandemic, there's no, there's no record store, you know, activity going on, or very little at least. But I, online, I was able to find a, a copy of this Watermark album from Enya, who Tof, one of your favorites, you know, oh, you're a big Enya fan. Lover, huge fan. Yeah, yeah. You know, Watermark's great. I I really dug into Shepherd Moons. You know, that was my first uh, realization that I was a huge Enya fan. And then obviously she's put out a couple of really, really great albums since then. What is Spooky Tooth? That sounds like a really weird name for some heavy rock music. Yeah, they're kind of a hard rock band. You would like them, Clay. I think you would dig Spooky Tooth. But yeah, it's kind of a cool name for sure. So Watermark contains one of... And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Enya had like basically two U.S. hits. One was Caribbean Blue, mm -hmm. and the other was Sail Away or Ironical Flow. I think. Ironical Flow. Yep. 
And that's on Watermark. And so mm-hmm. I've been listening to that. It's a really good kind of nighttime album. I remember, I think mm-hmm. you went through a phase where you were falling asleep to Enya quite a bit, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, completely. So, you know, we always listen, as we've mentioned before, we always listen to music uh, going to bed. And growing up, uh, it was either Jim Bajor, the piano music, or it was Enya. Uh, and for me, that was Shepherd Moons. I mean, there were... For years, I listened to Shepherd Moon's Falling Asleep. In fact, I know the first four songs really well, and then I know the last handful of songs very poorly because usually I was zonked out. By <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, exactly. But Clay, you, you actually listen to Jim Bajor music when you fall asleep now, right? That is true, Toph. Yeah, and what do you think of what? How would you describe Jim Bajor music? So I would subs. I would subscribe. Describe it. Describe it as. A little softer, like I mean way softer than um, the Foo Fighters. And and it's also like soft piano, you know, like always that music is all. Yeah, it's very relaxing. Does it get you very relaxed? Yeah. Because, you know, you're pretty hyper usually. So, um, yeah. So, you know, it's good to find something that gets you nice and chilled out. So, yes, big believers in listening to uh, uh, music at night. And Enya is a great choice. It's a great round and round, Nubs. You got it. What is round and round for you, T? Really three things that are all a little bit different. Um, (laughs) The first is a brand new album from one of my all-time favorite groups that I think I've mentioned before on the old podcast here uh, in passing, but that is Eurasure. Brand new album from those two wonderful dudes called The Neon that just came out this week and uh, haven't really dug into it completely, but uh, certainly... Uh, looking forward to getting to know that record as I've gotten to know all Eurasia records in the past. So very excited to get new music and hopefully we'll get a new tour from those guys in due time. Uh, the second, a little something different, is uh, the album Scum. And this is by Napalm Death. And, you know, part of what kind of brought this on was I came across a documentary Uh, which is called Slave to the Grind on YouTube, which is really a completely in-depth history of grindcore music, which actually started, has roots in Flint, Michigan, which I didn't know, but really enjoyed learning about this genre. I'm not sure it's something that, you know, I would just pop in regularly, but to learn about how this genre came about and what the fan base consists of and what the musicians themselves are going for and just kind of the whole development and really probably unexpected sustainment of this scene was really fascinating. And and the album that these artists kept pointing to as, you know, sort of a catalyst and sort of a pioneering effort of this grindcore genre is this album by Dame Palm Death, who has gone through a lot of different generations of lineups since then, but this was a, mid to late 80s, you know, very pioneering effort of a very unique genre that's worth learning about if you have a couple hours to to tune in and watch Slave to the Grind. It's really, really good. And it's a very fascinating uh, method and genre of music to learn about if you're so willing. Napalm Death is a is a really extensive group. My connection to them is more the mid 90s. Scum is a is a classic album when you're looking at the development of that grindcore thing, I'm impressed by that pick. I got to say, 
Well, it's always good to learn about a new, you know, genre and, and classification and style of music that you've never really dug into before. And I give a lot of credit to the documentary for really doing a good job of taking a genre that isn't always easy to explain and, and isn't always easy for a lot of others to understand. And at the least, you know, making sense of the history and the roots of it. And so, you know, it's, it's been cool. It's been interesting, a little something different. And then my third choice um, is by the great band out of Australia in excess and an album that a lot of their fans didn't like at the time, but I've loved since day one of this release and it's welcome to wherever you are. And I always remember the DigiPack. Uh, you mentioned packaging earlier during your round and round. I'll give a nod to these guys. This was one of those threefold. See, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the DigiPack. It was the EcoPack. So the DigiPack uh, is the twofold thing that saved, you know, some waste. What you're referring to is called the EcoPack. It actually doubled as the box for the CD and then became also the case for the CD. And there were only a few of them. I mean, you're right. Welcome to wherever you are was one of them. It was, it was really innovative packaging, but it didn't last very long. That's right. You're absolutely right. Ecopack and really cool artwork. I don't usually, you know, care as much about liner notes and artwork and those type of things. Although I do think it's a lost art of the album purchasing and uh, absorbing experience. But this was an album that you know, kind of gave in excess a little bit of a redirection as far as sound and as far as um, what they're kind of going for there in that early '90s time period. And I just think they did a great job on this uh, on this unique record for them. Well, now that round and round is through, we are going to dig into this Foo Fighters album, "The Color and the Shape." So, as I mentioned earlier, back in episode one, we discussed "In Utero." And we talked a little bit about Dave Grohl and we talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, they had contributed writing credit on Scentless Apprentice, which sounded like not the most joyous uh, collaboration, but one that was really important in that it demonstrated because Dave Grohl wrote both the drum riff and the guitar riff to that song. It showed that Dave Grohl certainly had some interest in composition. And little did we know that he was sitting on a bunch of songs, most of which he would come to be pretty quickly known for on the debut Foo Fighters album, which basically was a Dave Grohl solo album. You know, he played every instrument. Uh, he wrote every part of every song. He had demoed all those songs onto a cassette tape, which he wrote the words Foo Fighters on just kind of spur of the moment and ended up becoming... <laughs> the rather iconic name of one of the most important rock bands of our time, which is very interesting. Well, and, um, and the album is the demo of that first album. We, and we've talked about this in some other contexts. I remember Collective Soul was one of them. But Dave went into the studio and thought he was just laying down some demos, and those demos actually became the album. It's always a good lesson in that. Sometimes if you go in to try and record something really raw and just lay down some demos, sometimes that could turn into an enormous hit album. And, and so it's always an interesting thing that he, he didn't try and re-record those songs for the first album. He just used the original demos and they ended up sounding great. That's exactly right. And that will come into play in the conversation tonight about the color and the shape because you had this 
ultra rawness of the Foo Fighters debut. And then you have a complete refresh as, as far as producer, as far as production approach, as far as band members, and probably as far as contribution on composition, as far as we can tell. This may not be when the Foo Fighters became a full band just yet, because there were a few steps still to take. That really wouldn't come until after The Color and the Shape. But this marked where the Foo Fighters became something that was here to stay. And something that wasn't a one-off and something that wasn't merely a solo execution. So the band still had a ways to go to really, you know, culminate into more of an integrated full band situation. But the color and the shape, I think, as we'll discuss, was a very critical step in the Foo Fighters establishing themselves as a band that was going to become one of the most important really of our time and of the past couple of decades. Now that I agree wholeheartedly with, I think if you, this album was the key to us still talking about Foo Fighters, no question about it. You're totally right. So let's get into these nerdy deets, which are in case you didn't know, done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? The color and the shape was released in May of 1997. It was the sophomore release for the Foo Fighters who had put out the self-titled record two years earlier and marked a new direction as far as production is concerned. Most of that is highlighted by the hiring of Gil Norton, who was and remains obviously an extremely polished accomplished producer within rock music. This already sent the band and sent the whole Foo Fighters operation into a different chapter because it was pretty evident at this point that when you hire a producer like Gil Norton, that you're not looking for a, you know, something that was demo based like the first album or something that sounded garagey or kind of a Steve Albini type of an approach like Nirvana had taken on in utero. This is a producer who believed in multiple takes, perfection, you know, a little bit like Mutt Lang, as we talked about on the Adrenalize episode, in that a producer who believes in repetition, who believes in getting it perfect and believes in taking the amount of time and the amount of takes to do so. Now, here's what makes this interesting. The band members that Dave Grohl had, you know, recruited to become members of the Foo Fighters were a couple of guys named William Goldsmith and Pat Smear. Now, we all know who Pat Smear is. Yeah. You know who Pat Smear is, right, Clay? Yeah. What do you think of Pat Smear? When you say Pat Smear, I just can't stop thinking about at the end of the Big Me music video when Pat Smear does the, oh, funny face. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty funny in that Big Me video, right? Yeah. Iconic video from those guys. But as we remember, before he started being funny in videos, Pat Smear, you know, was in a very influential, very stripped down punk band called Germs. And then he joined Nirvana. So, you know, back in 1997, coming into a situation where you're going to make this lushly layered produced rock album was something that I'm sure caused some dissension with Pat and with the drummer. And we'll get into that whole saga, which obviously was a big part of the recording of 
the color and the shape. Well, right above your head from where you're broadcasting right now are, are, are your albums of the year for the last, oh, I don't know what it looks like, maybe 25 years, maybe even more than that. And almost right above your right ear is an album called Chrome by the Catherine Wheel, produced by Gil Norton. Yes, sir. And Gil Norton was very famous for taking very imperfect bands and making them sound perfect. His whole thing was kind of take indie rock bands and more underground bands and put this huge layer of polish on their sound and make them sound perfect. And you don't hire Gil Norton if you don't want to sound perfect. You know, Pat Smear is a very imperfect musician, so he brought some balance to the table. But it wasn't just William Goldsmith. It was William Goldsmith and Nate Mendel, who were both members of Sunny Day Real Estate, who by this time were sort of on the fritz when the Foo Fighters got together. And Sunny Day Real Estate is absolutely infamous for trying to be perfect really putting so much thought and intention behind every note of their music as sort of that emo math rock sort of deal. And so Dave goes out and he finds these musicians that all came from bands that ended before they should have ended. And when you look at the germs and you look at Sunny Day Real Estate, that's the running theme. And of course, Dave Grohl comes from a band that ended before it was, you know, theoretically supposed to end. And so it was a real mismatch of musicians and talent. So just looking back, you know, and this is the one document of sort of that era, clearly it didn't come together the way that he intended. And we'll talk a little bit about album of the year when we get to the wonder stories relative to tonight. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, Gil Norton had a real knack for, for polishing bands that, you know, not only probably hadn't done it before, but certainly weren't used to the idea. You can tell that part of the outcome of this record was that Dave Grohl was really happy with it. Uh, and that becomes evident. And Pat Smear wasn't because Pat Smear actually quit the band after this record, um, actually in the middle of a show, in the middle of a tour. Now they had already decided he was going to leave the band, but he announced it publicly the band uh, was playing at Radio City Music Hall right in the middle of the set. Pat Smear announced that this was going to be his last song with the band. And he brought up the new guitar player and they kind of had this peaceful transition of power uh, right there on stage in New York City. And Pat Smear wasn't part of the Foo Fighters for many years. People forget that. You, you kind of think of this band and you think Pat Smear has been there all along the way, but he didn't rejoin until like 10 years later. He took a really long period of time off from this band. And a lot of people speculate that he had a bad taste in his mouth about some of the production and commercialization of the color and the shape. And he was probably still thinking about his old friend, Kurt, and, you know, maybe had some commercial guilt or whatever it might be. Now, eventually he rejoined and obviously he is now and continues to be a very important player within this band. And, and I think everyone was really happy when he came back. It actually, it was a pretty legendary thing. They actually did that not inside of Radio City Music Hall, but it was on the roof of Radio City Music Hall right before the MTV Awards. They were playing, you know, a couple songs for sort of the pre-show. And without telling anybody, they literally changed band members in the middle of a couple songs set on the roof 
of Radio City Music Hall. So go figure. You know, when Pat Smear talks about it, he really says he just got sick of playing shows. And this was kind of true with William Goldsmith, too. When the Foo Fighters first got together, they played an absolutely ridiculous amount of live shows in their first couple of years as a band. I mean, it's it's kind of all they did. And so I think he got really burnt out of playing live with the Foo Fighters. And by the time the second album came out, he wanted no part of it. But Pat Smear comes crawling back and Dave welcomes him back with open arms. And now they got like five guitarists in the band, you know, cause Hey, we can't, yeah. have, can't have enough guitarists. No, you know? definitely not in this band, but everything was still kind of mismatched at this point. And, and we'll talk about what happened you know, during the recording of this album too. Cause uh, William Goldsmith kind of found his way out of the band as well. I think as we wrap up the nerdy deets here, we should touch quickly on the drummer situation because Dave Grohl had recruited Goldsmith to play drums on this record. I do think it's very symbolic on the color and the shape to remember what band Dave Grohl came from and who Dave Grohl's basically role model was. And that was Kurt Cobain. So he was a bandmate with Kurt Cobain, but I also think he really looked up to Kurt in the way that he executed. And as we talked about way back in episode one, Kurt was a control freak. Kurt knew that his execution of his vision was going to be ideal in most every situation. And I think that plays into what happened with this drum thing because Goldsmith actually recorded most of the tracks in sort of initial sessions, which happened out in rural Washington with Gil Norton. And then there was a holiday break where the band kind of took a little bit of time off to regroup, listen to the work that had been done. And as it turned out, Dave Grohl ended up writing a couple of rather important songs during this this time period, this break from the studio that ended up being a part of the record. But Dave Grohl listened to what had been done and clearly wasn't pleased with the drumming, clearly thought that there were a lot of things that needed to be different. And as we've mentioned, Dave Grohl, fantastic drummer. And when you're doing your second album coming off of your debut, which you played every instrument, including the drums, which is certainly, you know, your bread and butter. I bet it becomes really, really difficult to have somebody else come up and play drums on the album. So Dave basically scrapped nearly all of the drum parts that Goldsmith had played with the exception of a couple of sections and played all the drums himself. And it's a good example of even early on in the Foo Fighters career, you could really get a sense for whose project this was and whose project it's been ever since. And that's Dave Grohl. You know, I am a gigantic Sunny Day real estate fan, as you know. And William Goldsmith, William Goldsmith is probably the only drummer I've ever seen that plays harder and louder than Dave Grohl. I mean, he is just a basher. And Sunny Day real estate was an amazing band. And I'll always feel a little bad for him because Grohl, who seems like an incredibly cool guy. I mean, Dave Grohl seems like the greatest rock star in the history of rock stars. But it's very obvious that he kind of like screwed William Goldsmith over. You know, Goldsmith toured with Foo Fighters for two whole years and played those songs over and over again to build towards this second album that he was going to get to play on. He played on it. The sessions were a disaster. And Grohl kind of says, to your point, I might be able to do this a little bit better. 
And by all accounts, he kind of like behind Goldsmith's back kind of snuck in and did the tracks and then kind of dropped it on William Goldsmith. Hey, like you're out. Yeah, it was not uh, (laughs) the communication on this whole situation was not clean. And it led to Goldsmith rather angrily leaving the band Uh, And you know, there are all these different versions of what happened. But I think one of the things that's pretty evident is Dave Grohl at this time wasn't I don't think he had quite learned yet as not just a front man of this band, but as CEO of this band, how you need to communicate. And he didn't do a good job with Goldsmith. I think that's clear. Yeah. Perfectly captured. I mean, and these guys are young. I mean, they're all really young. William Goldsmith was young. And so they're, they're all doing things that we would have all done in our young twenties. If we all of a sudden were sort of handed the keys to an empire, you know? And so, yeah, it wasn't Grohl at his best. And even in the Foo Fighters movie, if you ever watch it, he doesn't even really like talking about it because I think he's a little embarrassed about the way it went down. But as a Sunny Day fan, there's always a feeling of, gosh, with with Nate and William and Dave Grohl together. I mean, what a band, you know, and and uh, so it's a little bit of a bummer that never came to be. Of course, Nate is like, you know, the ultimate Foo Fighter. He he quit the band for like one night and rejoined it. <laughs> But yeah, um, he's really the backbone of the band in a lot of ways, as far as playing goes. He is, he is. And, and Sunny Day eventually did a little reunion and William Goldsmith was able to at least get some mileage out of that. But uh, it would have been very interesting to see how that band truly would have developed as a band with two Sunny Day guys, the guitarist from the Germs, and of course, Dave Grohl. And it never really panned out that way. Well, it never really panned out in that form, but certainly once they got things pretty ironed out, that panned the out then. Yeah. It panned out then. And that's the point where they really truly became a band. Let's get to the wonder stories. Before we get to Nubs, Clay, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you remember kind of the first time that you heard the Foo Fighters or where you were or, or kind of what you liked about the band? Um, yes, Toast. So about that, I don't remember when I was like the first time I listened to Foo Fighters. I think. Wait, I just remembered. Oh, okay. So I said... So when I was really into um, Nirvana, I'm like, Tove, Tove, let's go, let's go to a Nirvana <laughs> band. And he's like, sorry, Kurt died and the band broke up. And I'm like, why? You and wanted to see him in concert, right? Yeah. 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 And then I asked him, well, where did the rest of the band go? And he said, well, Dave Grohl started a new band mm-hmm. with um Pat Smear. Mm-hmm. So, um... And I'm like, what is it called? And he's like, the Food Fires. It's really good. Want to listen to some of it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. That's exactly right, bud. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of a bummer due to the uh, pandemic is uh, I was going to take you to your first concert on October the 5th. We were going to go see the Food Fighters in Detroit. And that's been postponed. Hopefully we can get that back in form you know, here sooner than later, but I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that even though that show got canceled, your first ever rock and roll concert is probably going to be the Foo Fighters. And I assume you're excited to go see them live. Yeah. 
I'm yeah, I'm really excited to see them live. I mean, I've never seen a live band before. I haven't even seen Oasis live. That's true. Well, neither has anyone else right now because Oasis broke up because the two brothers can't get along because they're a couple of knuckleheads, right? Who would have thought two brothers that can't get along? Right? I mean, geez, oh, Pete's. Not even Tyler and Evan get along. <laughs> Our next door neighbors, Tyler and Evan. So there you go. Uh, Nubs, what's your wondrous story with the Foo Fighters? My wondrous story with this band begins with turning on 89X here in Metro Detroit and hearing something that went like, visiting is pretty visiting <laughs> is good and having no clue who was singing that song and just sort of thinking oh this is good like oh this is cool this is kind of a cool grungy 1994 sort of deal and then this big chorus comes in and this is a call to you know and it's like cool song nice dude it took me i don't know a month or two to learn that this Foo Fighters thing was actually the drummer from Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, this was pre-Google, right? You, you, yeah. You didn't yeah. always get this information quickly. Yeah, it Takes us back to like a very glorious time in music where things could be a little mysterious. And not that that was the intention, but you didn't like have to know everything. You didn't have to Google every element or see a pre-release on Amazon or hear a, a lead single on YouTube. I mean... You kind of listened to the radio and you heard a song, you liked it, and then you tried to figure out who it was. And eventually you realize, oh, that's the drummer from Nirvana's band. Oh, wait, he's actually the one singing. And then I don't know why, but like two or three months later, it took a while for the next one to come out. And that that started with And that of course is I'll stick around. And by the time I'll stick around came out, then I'm like, okay, I'm all in. Like where, when does this album come out and how can I buy it? <laughs> right. And so it was interesting. Cause this is a call. You, you're like, Oh, this is this mysterious band. You find out it's Dave Grohl. And then by the time I'll stick around comes out, you realize, Holy crap, this dude is immensely talented and might even be able to outshine his former band in a number of ways. So it was those two songs and both complete jams that really got me into Foo Fighters. And then of course stuck around as you will, and really followed them right up until present day. I've, I've pretty much, I've pretty much really liked or loved everything they've done since. What's your one to story? How would you discover these guys? Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier the concept of our albums of the year and uh, I was actually going to mention anyway, because the color and the shape was my album of the year in 1997. But since 1990, uh, when we were 10 years old, um, this is how big a nerds nubs and I were even at a young age, we were already kind of deciding each year what our top album of the year for that particular uh, time period was. And in 1997, this was my pick. And the thing that I really, really remember, um, we had just turned, we were about 16 when this album came out or 17 years old, I guess. And the big thing back then was the car uh, CD cartridges. I had one of those six CD changers in my car and you would replace the cartridge in the trunk and, you know, you had CDs that would come and go. And of all the albums that I've ever listened to, and especially during that time, maybe with the exception of like one or two that I might be forgetting about, 
there was no album that spent as much time in my car CD cartridge as the color and the shape. It was in there for what seemed like years, even after this album's release. I mean, I just couldn't take it out. I listened to it constantly. And it was one of the early examples that I can remember because even back then things could get pretty singles driven and digging into deep cuts and listening to albums start to finish, you know, at 15, 16, 17 years old, you don't always do that. Sometimes you flip around or you listen to your favorites. The color and the shape was a very early example to me of one that it didn't matter what point the album was at. I was listening to it from that point forward. I wasn't flipping back to track two for the hit single or flipping around. I wanted to listen to the whole thing because I thought at the time, and I still think to this day that top to bottom, this album just takes you in so many different directions and they're directions that for the most part, I really, really like. One thing that needs to be said, and we've already visited this year one time in the old podcast here, we've had... 11 shows now. This is our 11th show. This is the third time we've taken a trip to 1997. 1997 is probably the greatest year in the history of albums. Wow. That's that right. you can didn't have. Even, didn't even put that together. It's a good Absolutely. Call. And, and we haven't even, I mean, we we've done Oasis be here now, which is my album of the year. 97. We did our lady pieces clumsy tonight is the color and the shape, but T let me just throw out a few other albums that came out in 1997, just to give you an idea of what this year really meant. Mm-hmm. One is called okay. Computer. <laughs> Of course, the great Radiohead album. The Prodigies, The Fat of the Land, 1997. Yep. The Verve's Urban Hymns. Chemical Brothers, Dig Out Your Own Hole. Spiritualized, put out Ladies and Gentlemen, We're Floating in Space uh. in 1997. Daft Punk put out Homework, which is you know, a legendary album in that world. U2's pop album, which was my favorite U2 album, came out that year. And, and let's not forget, in the world of hip-hop, that was the year of both... Puff Daddy's No Way Out and Notorious B.I.G.'s Life After Death. I mean, this this year was just insane in terms of like the level of quality of albums that came out in a bunch of different genres. So I don't think it's any coincidence that this is the third time of 11 podcasts that we've taken a trip to this exact year. I mean, it's just an extraordinary year in terms of albums. That's a great observation. And uh, wow, what a year indeed. That laundry list you just gave of albums, pretty impressive. But for the moment, let's dig right into this one and drop the needle. When you pop in the color and the shape, particularly coming off of their debut, and you're probably expecting to get, you know, hit over the head right away with some Dave Grohl madness, you get there in track two, but you don't quite get there in track one as the prologue to the album is nice and sweet in track one, doll. We won't spend a ton of time on it because it's a minute 24 and serves as more of an intro than anything else, but nice and sweet in typical girl fashion, proving that there is melody to be had, but really kind of 
the calm before the storm, I would say, in what you get in track too. Monkey wrench. The first single off this album, the first music video, I believe, off this album. And uh, the thing I remember very much about this music video, uh, beyond anything else, is that Dave Grohl had short hair and a goatee. Uh, it's a good song and everything, but I think the short hair and the goatee on Dave Grohl is part of the story here. <laughs> Their videos are a huge part of the identity of this band. They clearly have a pretty good sense of humor, and they do a good job in their videos of showing that. Monkey Wrench has never been a favorite of mine. It's one of those elements of this album. Every time you think it's like a real great classic or something, there's just a few things on it that get in the way of that. Monkey Wrench is one of those things. And the reason why is because to me, Dave Grohl is like a master of dynamics. You know, it's the loud, quiet, loud thing that works so well. Look at the pretender. Look at all my life. Uh, look at times like these. Like these are songs that really capitalize on these incredible dynamics it's just not a favorite of mine at all i would agree it's a song that a lot of people know and a song that i think uh for more kind of fringy foo fighters fans you know one that's certainly was a single and a bit well known but when you compare it to the remainder of the color of the shape you know it's a nice start it kind of gets you rocking and gets you going uh, but the moment for me where you realize that this album was going to be something special uh, really came on uh, track three, which is Hey Johnny Park. This was the moment for me um, because, you know, most of us had heard Monkey Wrench prior to listening to this album for the first time. But when Hey Johnny Park came on, you really realized that between the drum intro, the groove of the song, the vocals of the song, and really the creativity different. This was, this was a big moment for me, this track, in realizing, whoa, this album's going to be something very unique and very special. His gift of melody totally comes through on Hey Johnny Park. I completely agree with you. This was, this was maybe the moment in the Foo Fighters catalog where you're like, oh, this is for real. I mean, this guy's going to be able to write some really heartfelt songs that, again, dynamics. I mean, what makes Hey Johnny Park so wonderful? It's, it's the loud, quiet, loud thing. It's, it's a classic Nirvana you know, style. It's the thing that maybe the main thing that he took from Nirvana, the poor guy, you know, when he started Foo Fighters, all people wanted to talk to him about was Nirvana. And they're very, very different right. bands, you know? Right. But yep. the one thing that they really share is that loud, quiet, loud element, that dynamics piece. And Hey, Johnny Park is a terrific example of that. It's, a, it's an awesome song. And you do see that throughout the record. Clay, what do you think of this song, Hey, Johnny Park? Like, I know this might sound insane, but I don't really um, like this song as much um, as the other ones. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I think that this, uh, this song is uh, extremely important in kind of setting the tone of what was to come on this album. And, and Nubs, to your point, that loud, quiet, loud element is something that they really executed well both during Nirvana era, and you certainly see it throughout this record quite a bit. 
Johnny Park was a childhood friend of Dave Grohl's. They were apparently best buddies from the time when Dave Grohl was about five years old till about 12 years old. And he said that part of the part of the reason he named the song after him was hope he was actually hoping he could get back in touch with his childhood friend, Johnny Park. Um, no word yet on if that was effective, but hopefully the guy at least gave Dave Grohl a call. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, I wish Dave Grohl put my name in a song and wanted to reconnect with me. If you're going to get a song written about you on a major label by a guy from one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. You might want to return the phone call. That might be nice. I mean, if you get a song by a different band, that's like about you. It's, it's kind of like, that means you're like, you broke up or something or you left something and they want you to come back and stuff or maybe give them a call. It's quite an honor to have a rock and roll song written after you. So I'm sure Johnny Park was, you know, was pretty happy with this, but you know, we'll have to dig further and find out if, uh, if uh, you know, he actually gave Dave Grohl a call because judging from that Foo Fighters documentary, if nothing else, Dave Grohl has a pretty sweet pool. So maybe Johnny Park wants to, you know, give him a call and at least uh, go for a dip. He's got a great pool. Great pool. <laughs> so he's like, he goes in a band, so he gets like a lot of money and stuff. And he has enough to buy like a great pool and stuff. That's and- pretty much right. Yeah, that's pretty much right. You, you can see where Dave Grohl put some of his fortune right in that amazing pool in his backyard. So we move on from Hey Johnny Park into My Poor Brain. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this one probably defines loud, quiet, loud as much as anything. One of the interesting things about this one is the verse drumming is actually William Goldsmith. So you can hear uh, his drumming on the song, which is a little bit of a rare moment. Perfect example of loud, quiet, loud. And I, I really love... Uh, while they're very different in their dynamics and in their progressions, I love the verses, especially with that kind of chop guitar that sort of keeps it moving. And then obviously the chorus is a big jam. So really like My Poor Brain and the way it comes off of a really good track three. I adore My Poor Brain. And and it's it's this the middle part of a three-song sandwich that is just like insanely good. When you go, hey, Johnny Park, My Poor Brain, and then what comes after? It's interesting that Goldsmith, as much of a pounder as he was, the two songs that Grohl kept his drum parts on is the the soft verses in this song and then Doll. Right. You know, <laughs> right. so go figure. That chorus is, I mean, it's a monster. It's just a huge riff and Grohl just plays it perfectly. I I love this song. It's probably, It very well could be my favorite song on the album. Well, you're right about this trio. I mean, this is a this is a pretty rocking uh, segment to this album, and uh, I I believe this to be part three of this uh, trilogy of jam that we get, and we're not even to the you know first half of this album yet, and uh, and we get that in wind up. Just, I mean, 
just wide open Foo Fighters here. And you, and you hear it a lot as you revisit their catalog and you look at, you know, all their hits, their deep cuts, everything in between. You know, when these guys get wide open, it's pretty tough to beat. And they certainly did it quite a bit on the debut, but not quite with this lush production. I just think it really comes off well and wind up total jam. Grohl is really establishing a, a songwriting style on this album. And during this three-song run, you, you kind of see it. It's these, these kind of slurry chords. Um, everything kind of winds in and out. As much of a songwriter as he becomes, and he's known as being a front man, the dude is still a drummer. And he writes songs that really cater towards big, heavy drums. And this is a great example of that. You know, he... He's really good at writing songs that he knows would be fun to play drums to. And uh, Wind Up is a, a really outstanding example of that. I mean, it just it, it just concludes a three-song run that's about as good as anything else that came from that era. Clay, what do you think of when the Foo Fighters just really rock out like this? Do you like when they play really heavy rock or do you like when they play kind of some of the softer stuff? I really like when they play the heavier because what if there was just stuff like... Oh, you can't get me baby girl. Oh, like no one would like that. And if it's like, oh yeah, you're gonna go. And I don't care what I'm gonna go. Oh, I just made that up. Oh, so Clay, while you're in the singing mood, I know there's a Foo Fighter song that you particularly like and uh, and thought maybe we could get a little, sometimes uh, Uncle Nubs and, and I like to sing on the podcast. Wondered if maybe would you be willing to kind of give a quick performance for us or for our listeners? I know they'd love to hear it. Yes, I'm ready. So you're, so you're willing to give us a singing performance, bud? Because yeah. I think people would love it. Yeah. All right. We'll take the mic here and let's, uh, let me just queue up. I'll queue up one of your favorites here. Okay. Okay. Cute. All right. You ready? But very good. Good job, Clay. Love it. Shoot, that may be up there with one of the better performances. I mean, compared to our nonsense. I guess we'll follow that up with uh another one that's pretty melodic and pretty sweet, um, for the most part. And it's a part one, part two song. Really defines quiet loud here with up in arms. So we talked during the Nerdy Beats about the producer, Gil Norton. And one of the things that's kind of funny about this song is if you really listen closely, that last line where Dave Grohl says, I could not forget you, girl, which he says throughout the whole song, he actually says, I could not forget you, Gil. 
And uh, a little bit like we talked about on the 311 episode last week, this, uh, you know, vocalizing props to your producer, which they did in their music record. It's kind of interesting and kind of cool for uh, Dave Grohl to give a direct shout out in kind of a funny way to the producer, Gil Norton. You know, it's not my favorite song on the album, but it's one that I think defines and symbolizes this quiet, loud element of the album very directly. I agree. It capitalizes on the dynamics, but it, it doesn't have a lot of feel to it. it. It's a, it's just kind of a brisk, like throwaway sort of idea The the highs, the goods on this album are just monumentally strong, but there's just duff throwaway things on here as well. And up in arms is, is one of those for me. It just feels like this is just an avenue to get to what's next and didn't have a lot of thought behind it. Yeah, and that's fair. And certainly you saw this a lot during this time period. And in that same year where we, we talked about Clumsy, oftentimes you saw these filler tracks certainly setting up tracks that they probably knew were going to be heaters. And I think everybody knew that this one was going to be a heater. I sure did. You know, even my first few times listening to this album, once you got to the middle and once you got to track seven, you kind of knew that you were listening to something that could be fairly special. And one that certainly did become a very special song of the 90s, My Hero. I know this is a uh, Foo Fighters favorite, one of the your, your favorite songs by this band. What do you what do you like about My Hero? What is it about this song that you enjoy? Well, I really like the music video and stuff, but the song, it's just really, really rock. It's like really like good rock music and stuff. Agreed. And you know, one of the things, obviously, I kind of said that. Hey, Johnny Park had a pretty memorable drum intro. This is an absolutely iconic drum intro. I mean, you have heard this in, you know, sports highlights, videos and montages over the last couple of decades. And boy, my hero gets off to just an electrifying start before the riffs and the melodies and the licks and all those things that make this song really, really critical. Even just the drum part alone and the way it chugs in and the way it slams in like that, you know, you know, you're in for a, a quite the track seven here on the middle of the record. This is the moment where you realize why Dave wanted to play drums on the album. Cause if you ever hear some bootlegs, they started playing my hero uh, when they were on the tour for the first album with William Goldsmith on the drums. And he didn't, play the intro the same way Dave did. I I almost think this is one of those songs where Dave was just uncompromising. He's like, it has to be this way. And he wanted to be able to capture it as the songwriter. It's a very, very well-constructed song. I think the guitar work in the verses is is what stands out to me. Nate Mendel says that this song is what kind of I don't know, guaranteed him that the Foo Fighters were going to be okay, you know, because at this point they were still a band with one album and everything was a little bit loose. And Nate said that when he heard My Hero and realized Dave could write a song of this caliber that he was like, okay, this is going to be fine. Kind of ruined by its usage in uh, Varsity Blues. I think uh, part of, uh, to your your point, overplayed and sometimes used in situations where you wouldn't prefer it be used. 
But, you know, with that aside, I mean, it really is. This is one of those songs that, you know, back when it was in my car stereo cartridge, I remember just thinking, wow, this song's probably going to be huge. And, and certainly, you know, that came true. So we move on from My Hero, more of an iconic song in the 90s, into See You. So I guess just sort of a cute Foo Fighters song here, which obviously you get from time to time, particularly in their early work. And one of the things that's interesting about this one is Dave Grohl had said that none of the other band members nor the producers really thought much of this song. And what he did is he incorporated the crazy little thing called love drum part. And once he said, okay, guys, I put a little crazy little thing called love on this. Everyone was kind of like, all right, I guess, I guess we're okay with it. So <laughs> incorporating the coolness of queen uh, and certainly, you know, Dave Grohl is, is quite a, a, a drum student. You know, he's a, he's a student of the game. He's, a lot more scientific about the drums than you think he is. And I would say the same about Taylor Hawkins, who eventually joined this band. Um, you know, those guys are drummers, drummers in a lot of ways and their appreciation and all that. So kind of cool that he used that to help get everybody on board with what he was trying to do here on CU. So, you know, not a favorite, um, probably the weakest point in the album, if I had to say so. But, you know, for what it is, kind of a cute Foo Fighters uh, track, you know, it's all right. That's a cool story, though. He's a huge, huge music appreciator. You know, some people get into music just because they're good at it. He got into music because, you know, he's super influenced and it's cool he let that come out. So Dave Grohl always envisioned the Foo Fighters as being a stadium arena rock band. You know, that was what he saw. He wanted them to be driving. He wanted them to be upbeat. He wanted them to be, you know, something that could play Wembley, which eventually did a few times. And part of this was he wanted to create songs. He always liked these open air, you know, general admission type settings in stadiums when the fans in the UK in particular, as he mentioned, it would jump up and down bounce up and down to is what he said. And he wanted to come up with a track that was kind of the ultimate, you know, look out at the crowd and everyone's bouncing up and down song. And what came out of that was the rocker here on the back half of the color and the shape enough space. Yeah, what was that band that he was in before Foo Fighters? What were they called again? Yeah, that was Nirvana. Yeah, you, you think this sounds just a little bit like a Nirvana riff? I mean, my goodness. Yeah, agreed. And and look, I don't know about you guys. This is a song that, you know, I could definitely see myself jumping up and down to. See, do you hear any I mean, as I mentioned, there there seems there's a ton of Nirvana in enough space. And and you're right, he wrote it to get a crowd bouncing, but do you hear any similarity to the radio-friendly unit shifter off of In Utero? I mean, to me, it just sounds like a complete ripoff. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think you could see, and I, I actually think the Foo Fighters opened with enough space uh, quite a bit to really kind of get things charged up. And obviously, as we talked about back in episode one, Nirvana was opening with radio-friendly unit shifter for that same reason. But yeah, I think there are some definitely some similarities there when you look at 
kind of the drum driving beat when you look at the riff. I wouldn't be surprised if Pat Smear had a lot to do with this song from a guitar standpoint because it's just a really punky, straightforward power chord riff. But yeah, I think that's definitely a fair similarity. So we go from punky and driving and hard to a very thoughtful song that I think just not enough people have heard. A lot of Foo Fighters fans would note that this is probably one of their best you know, deep cuts uh, that they've ever created. And certainly I think it's one of their most special songs uh, here. Track 10, February Stars. So the first, you know, two thirds of this song are very quiet and and just, you know, you can kind of feel a slight build and that something's coming. And then a couple minutes into it, it just kind of explodes into this, you know, rather epic, very emotional and very loud and wide open piece. And I think is when you put all kind of the hits and singles aside, um, February Stars is one of the best Foo Fighter songs ever made. I really think it's a special part of this album and one that obviously when you factor in the song that follows, you know, one hell of a back-to-back, you know, track effort here that really kind of takes you home on this album. Um, so I'm really interested, you know, we always have the songs that we're particularly interested in what each other thinks. I, I've i always kind of wondered if this song sticks out to you as well. It's a beautiful song. It it It's a good example of when uh, Foo Fighters album tracks, which it's not the best album track band in the world. I mean, this is a band whose who's greatest hits would be as good a greatest hits as anybody. But album track wise, it's extremely hit or miss. This is a huge hit in terms of what an album track looks like. Very epic. It, it's a gorgeous song. Again, it, it shows Grohl really evolving in his songwriting. And I know you've always loved it. I think it's a real high point of the album for sure. It was a pretty old song. Dave Grohl wrote it back in 1994. So, you know, almost three years before this album was released. And the original demo was actually an acoustic uh, approach to this song that had Chris Novichalik on the harmonium. So maybe originally it was something that was pretty soft and and who knows if, you know, at what point the kind of, you know, wide open, heavy back half of the song came into part of the approach. But I think it's really, you know, wonderfully produced as well because, you know, there's nothing too complicated about it, but to take something that's pretty simple and pretty wide open with kind of a more mid-tempo beat and provide that much layering and that much emotion, I think Gil Norton really shines as much as anyone else on this one. So away we go. And uh, track 11 is... I don't know, one that a few of you might know, but uh, one of the more important songs of the entire decade and ever long. I don't really know what there is to say about Everlong other than, you know, track 11 here on the color and the shape, 
you know, certainly delivers um, a song that's incredibly important to this time period. Uh, probably the Foo Fighters classic, if you really had to kind of pick one song that sort of defines the band and, and in a lot of ways came to define this album. I think Everlong is what took the color and the shape from a record that was already destined to be really good and made it a record that probably many would note as the band's best. And I think a lot of that's driven by Everlong. It's a very interesting song in that it took a little bit to catch on. You know, I remember listening to Everlong for the first few months of having this album and it wasn't, you know, a big hit on the radio and I liked it, but I got to admit, I didn't foresee this one. You know, this wasn't one uh, where my hero was for me where, and I actually thought, Hey, Johnny Park was going to be a big hit and never happened, but I didn't see the ever long thing coming. So the, the song had an interesting, almost kind of gradual progression to it, but clearly eventually became something very iconic and something very important. Gil Norton gets a huge shout out for the success of this song. It's incredibly well produced, great riff, great opening riff, memorable chorus. And again, amazing dynamics with two to go. Um, we really get to, and this ends up being really a nice trifecta. So to nubs, to your point, you had that early trifecta with Johnny Park, my poor brain and wind up. I mean, right here, you got February stars ever long. And then, Another song, a softie that became, you know, quite a hit for this band as well in Walking After You. So kind of interesting, I mentioned during the Nerdy Beats that the band took kind of a break during the holiday to listen to the initial sessions. And obviously Dave Grohl ended up redoing the drums and they ended up making a lot of changes to this, this album on the fly. But during that time period, Dave Grohl wrote two songs and those two songs were ever long and walking after you. And both lyrically are kind of the result of uh, a, a divorce. Dave Grohl was actually going through at this time. In fact, he was, given divorce papers during this break. And that's when these two songs came out. One of the things that's kind of interesting to note about the color in the shape is it was really the first time that Dave Grohl got to be, you know, very creative and much more expressive lyrically. Now you and I aren't huge lyric guys, but when you compare some of the uh, content on this album compared to the first album, which was mostly kind of goofy and silly and stuff that, you know, was more play on words than anything else. You really get to a bit more of a personal and meaningful and more in depth uh, lyrical feeling from Dave Grohl, which would kind of continue on a bit. Um, they weren't ever afraid to be fun and kind of have more rock star lyrics, but Everlong and Walking After You, if you really kind of read through those, that's about as as in-depth as uh, certainly at that point that you had seen Dave Grohl ever get lyrically. And I think that was part of the appeal of this album was people really felt like he had become an artist, not just musically, but also in a way of realizing that lyrically it's a good opportunity to kind of express yourselves and be, and, and be a little bit personal. Now in typical Dave Grohl form, he can do this without being annoying or without being, you know, like his former bandmate, Kurt, sometimes it got a little too personal. He always found a great balance there, but 
I would say the last two songs in particular were the kind of initial examples where you hear, where you were able to hear Grohl kind of go in this direction. And I think a lot of fans really appreciated that. I don't think you know how much I love walking after you. I, I love this. Oh, I yeah. don't. That's cool. This is such a cool, just delicate song. It's got great atmosphere. I love the little cymbal rolls. It's, it's a really just direct and sentimental track from Gruel that has a great spot in the album. So um, what I like about the Foo Fighters is, what I like about the Foo Fighters is they know how to do heavy rock music, but they also know how to do really soft and calm music too. Yeah, I agree, Clay. That's exactly what I was saying, buddy. I totally agree with you, man. It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and Walking After You really is a great example. I did not know that you're very fond of that song, but uh, that's uh, that's good to know. I, hey, listen, Nubs, always learn something about you on the old podcast here. And, uh, you know, it's it, it really is a pretty song and actually one that became, you know, quite a big hit for them. You know, Walking After You is a great example of a band starting to expand. And to Clay's point, when you can rock out the way you can on enough space, uh, and then, you know, a few tracks later, you know, come out with something like Walking After You. I think that's part of uh, kind of this unique appreciation that the Foo Fighters started to earn with this record via songs just like that. And here we are already at the closer here, a bit of a rocker in New Way Home. Well, I know Clay and I are kind of basically headbanging, rocking out over here. How about you, Nubs? Uh, I mean, I think New Way Home just jams uh, and uh, kind of a fitting and a very cool and also very melodic because there's there's a lot going on there in that song that provides uh, something that's very building, very atmospheric. And it's tough sometimes to be up-tempo and atmospheric, but I think they find it on New Way Home as the closer. Again, you think about like, why did Grohl want to play drums on this so badly? Well, part of it might be that it's really hard to teach somebody such a, you know, monumental tempo shift that starts at one spot. I mean, this song does not start at the place that it ends at. So like I said earlier, Grohl is is really, really smart about how to sequence an album. I've never heard a Foo Fighters album that seems out of sequence. It always starts in a way that kind of grabs your attention and it ends in a way that leaves you wanting more, which is a mark of a well-sequenced album. And, and this is a good example of that. I think it's an ideal closer. I think there's a lot of thought behind what he wanted to achieve with the closing track. And I think he achieved it. It's a great point on sequencing because, you know, there, there may have been albums that, you know, that the Foo Fighters continue to put out that maybe had as, as good as songs, maybe didn't as some of their earlier work, uh, top to bottom, but they always got the sequencing right. They always had a great opener. They always had a great last track, whether it was something up tempo or, or softer, you know, they kind of experimented with all those things. But I think that's a very good point that, and, and Dave Grohl probably has as much to do with that as anybody. You can really tell that he knows how to start an album, how to create middle ambience in an album and how to close one up. And, and he proved that many, many times over time and certainly has continued to prove that even in their recent releases. So gentlemen, 
we are now completed with the color and the shape. And what we do right now, um, and, and Clay, you can uh, pose this question, but you know, we tend to want to know if Uncle Nubs thinks that this album mattered in kind of the grand scheme of music. Yeah, do you think the color and the shape matter, Nick? Well, thanks for asking, Clay. I appreciate that. I think this album absolutely matters. It matters for two reasons. Number one, it set the Foo Fighters on a path of long-term importance. And if this album, you know, didn't hit well or wasn't very good, then that band could have become you know, kind of a distant memory. I mean, remember that Dave originally had the choice whether to start the Foo Fighters or to become Tom Petty's drummer. So Dave Grohl had other options. And if Foo Fighters hadn't worked out, he would have found other things that he could have done. So it it matters for that reason. But more than anything, it really gave two songs that I think will will live on forever. I think as long as people are listening to rock music with guitars in it, people will listen to My Hero and people will listen to Everlong. And so those two things combined, it's an album that certainly matters um, and should matter because of its place in the era that it came out in and, and the guy who kind of had the vision to see it through. T, what do you think? Does Color in the Shape matter? I think it did. And I think you made a great point from the onset of the episode. The Foo Fighters weren't quite a band yet at this point, but they were getting there. And this was a critical step in taking them from what was a solo project, you know, basically cassette demos, which was the debut album from these guys. And then by the time you got to the next album after this one, they were pretty much a full-fledged band. They had brought in Taylor Hawkins. They had really solidified their lineup. But I think that Grohl's willingness to bring in some other people, Grohl's willingness to bring in you know an utmost professional as far as production is concerned, and his willingness to take this in a more lushly produced, layered direction was one that I think was really good that he did so. And if you remember, you know, Nirvana kind of went in the opposite direction where they started out lushly with Nevermind and then tried to backpedal and sort of strip things down. I think this is a bit more of a healthy progression where you start off stripped down and then you get into more of a production sense, particularly as you start to add more personnel. And I just think they really got it right. I mean, this, this record was a big one for me at the time, certainly. And, you know, also one that I think made people realize that, boy, these this Dave Grohl thing ain't just a project. These guys might be here to stay. And I think the color and the shape was a was a really prime example of of that. And to your point, a couple of really iconic, important songs uh, within rock music during this decade and during this era. Things are getting real rock and roll in here because uh, our guest Clay is taking his shirt off. He has. So for yeah. those of you that, that aren't aware, uh, Clay has decided to uh, de-shirt, which, I mean, listen, that's what you do when you're talking about rock and roll. Clay, well, what's behind the decision to go ahead and go shirtless, buddy? Uh, I just did it. <laughs> is it because dad's also shirtless? Is that part of it? Uh, nope. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Uncle, Uncle Nubs is right. Uh, we're, we're just, we're getting so rock and roll out here. We just, we can't take the heat. So, but, uh, let's get to the final cut here as we do on every episode of the old podcast here. And let's ask the question nubs for you is the Foo Fighters color in the shape on the turntable. Is it in the collection? 
Is it collecting dust or wah, wah, wow, is it in the for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? <laughs> that for sale bin, what a dreaded place to be. Oh, Who man. wants to be in the for sale bin? The color and shape is not in the for sale bin. The color and the shape is in the collection. Top to bottom, it's the best Foo Fighters album. How do you say it's not top to bottom? The other albums all have excellent moments. You know, they have great singles and and multiple singles. I mean, this isn't a band that's like one song and that's it on an album, but no Foo Fighters album is quite as complete as The Color and the Shape. And yeah, it's got its couple dufferoos, but in the end, uh, it's in the collection. It's firmly in the collection. That three-song run in the first half of the album is just, you know, absolutely fabulous. And this is one that you have and you take out from time to time and and you dig it. How about for you, T? What's the final cut? Where is it at for you? I'm right there with you. It's in the collection. I, I think that there are elements from time to time that that sound mildly dated. And and I, you know, I hesitate to say that because it's a wonderfully produced album, but you know, you can still tell you're listening to a 90s record. And the couple moments that you could probably go without, you know, I think a a, a couple of times where they try to get a little bit cute and a couple of things that we noted as filler, you know, keep it from really being kind of a perfect record, but I mean, it's fabulous and it's, I agree, it's their best one. And I don't, I don't think they've even come close. They've put out some great albums, but as far as top to bottom experience, I don't think they've been able to match it. And uh, a CD that I just could not take out of my car. I mean, for a very, very long time. And it was my album of the year in 1997. And it's in the collection for me, probably a heavy in the collection, but, uh, but one that I certainly uh, won't go, you know, too long without revisiting, but probably comes a bit short of, of being on the turntable there for me. And, and while we're at the final cut, I do want to thank Seth Huff, who's one of our listeners who suggested that we do this album as a request. And so, as we've said many times, we take requests here at Two Twins in an Album and shout out to Seth and uh, for suggesting that we do this album. And Seth, we were happy to do it. That's exactly right. Thank you very much, Seth. And and yeah, if anybody, you know, has anything they want us to talk about or review or create an episode out of, or, or even just touch on during, uh, you know, round and round or what's in our heads, you know, happy to do it. And, and certainly shout out to, to Seth for listening and, and for suggesting this great record. Clay, this is probably the first album that I think you've ever listened to kind of start to finish with all the different songs. And, you know, what do you think of this idea of not just listening to songs from a, from a band, but listening to an entire album? Did you like hearing the entire album and how did it sound to you? Uh, yes, Toph. And also I, I kind of, I forgot what I was going to say. Okay. Well, listen, the fact that, uh, I mean, Uncle Nubs, the fact that, you know, we got him listening to an album and, uh, and he says that he actually likes going start to finish on an album. I mean, I think that's a parenting job well done. If I may just pat myself on the back a little bit. The brainwashing is working. It's working. What, so well done you, to you. What? what? What the flip do you mean? <laughs> you'll, find, later. you'll find what out the what do you mean? I'll explain, <laughs> I'll explain later what brainwashing means, buddy. All right. Well, uh, let's let's try to brainwash our audience with uh, a few of our favorite uh, current tracks here as we get into in your head, in your head. zombie. That's right. Oh, good call, Clay. 
Clay, what do you think of this song? In your head, in your head. It bad. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, apparently zombie is not in Clay's, uh, you know, what's in your head. But, but uh, Uncle Nubs, what's in your head, buddy? Well, we just completed, and you'll have to tell me how this works, the first ever virtual record store day. So if you oh remember, re- record store day was supposed to be. How's that work exactly? Yeah, yeah. Record store day is always supposed to be in May and the pandemic, you know, prevented uh, record store day from happening. So they just did a virtual record store day this last week. And so I'm picking uh, three songs of, of artists that have releases for record store day this year in this virtual record store day, whatever the hell that's all about. <laughs> uh, the first one is Midnight from the Inside Out by the Black Crows. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the Black Crows Lions is being reissued for record store days. So looking forward to that. That means I can actually buy a vinyl copy of it with, without paying $300 for it. And if you look over my shoulder nubs, the year 2001 album of the year, what do you see? I see a, a big colorful lion, Black Crows Lions. Indeed, the Midnight from the Inside Out, not only the opener for that, but the song, and I think we mentioned before the Brotherly Love Tour, where we saw Oasis, the Black Crows, and Space Hog all on the same bill, which was incredible. Uh, That was the opening song for the Black Crows that night, on a night that we really caught the Black Crows on the right night. You know, they weren't always on, but we caught them on the right one, and I distinctly remember that being just a fantastic opener. Great pick. We caught all three of those bands on the right night. Funny you should mention Space Hog. Because ah. Next is In the Meantime, which is off Resident Alien, which is getting a long-awaited vinyl release on Record Store Day. I'll be paying some absurd amount of money for that particular copy. <laughs> was, that, was Resident Alien never available on vinyl until now? It has not been available. This is the wow. first vinyl release. Yeah. Excellent. First Very vinyl cool. release. Not, not a lot of stuff from that era came out on vinyl. And so Record Store Day, you know, tends to cash in on that idea. Another band featured a Record Store Day, Skid Row. And so I've been listening to a little uh, I Remember You off the first oh, Skid Row album. Beautiful. Great album, too. We should we should consider that one for a future podcast. It is a good album, though. That, they, that debut of theirs. I mean, as far as that genre goes, one of the best for sure. You got it. So T, what is in your head? Well, I'm going to start off. We talked about Tool uh, being a a band that Clay and I like to listen to quite a bit. Jombie has always been one of my favorites, and I think it's become one of your favorites too, Clay, by that band. (laughs) Um, And going back many, many years, this was on the 10,000 Days record, which was only one album ago, but, you know, it was like 12 years ago or whatever. You know, one that I don't go too long without revisiting. It's a fascinating song as far as time signatures go. And uh, just a very complex, uh, yet wonderfully simple, which you can say that many times with the band Tool um, on that song, John B. So that's certainly uh, been in my head even here recently. The second is by the band Starship. And, uh, you know, most people recognize uh, their their very uh, top tier hits there from the 80s. But a song called It's Not Enough, which uh, I think is a really good uh, effort from those guys. And, you know, that, that was an interesting group of obviously one that you know started in the 70s and then kind of morphed into this more pop project under starship and it's not enough is a uh, really good song from those guys that i've been digging from the 80s and then the third uh, just one that actually came on last night i was hanging out with some neighbors and we were uh throwing some bags and enjoying some uh 
summertime, you know, beverages, if you will, out in my backyard and Steely Dan's Babylon sisters came on. And, uh, not only did we end up winning the game of bags that I was, uh, participating in, which was great, but, uh, you know, it was just a great moment. It was a beautiful night and we were all hanging out and, uh, and Babylon sisters, uh, came up in this playlist and just provided a real nice backdrop. So, you know, Steely Dan, great, great summer band, obviously just a fantastic band as a whole, which Nubs discovered when he was 12 and took me until I was about 32 to really appreciate, but I got there. Um, you know, while so, you're a great bags player, while you were listening to it, did you shake it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All those wonderful lyrics that we always get from Steely Dan. <laughs> yeah, you know? right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what's in my head. And Nubs, uh, first of all, uh, you know, appreciate you letting our guest join us here, uh, uh, Clay. And Clay, did you enjoy being on the podcast or, or were, you, were you bored or what did you think of your first time ever being on uh, on something like this? Well, I thought it was awesome, but all the parts when you're like, oh, yeah, so what's in your head? Round and round, you were talking about a lot of stuff, and I got, like, a little boarded for a moment, <laughs> actually. Well, Clay, listen, uh, on behalf of Uncle Nubs, I want to thank you for taking the time. Obviously, you could be doing some very, very, you know, I know your time is valuable, Clay. And, you know, you could be uh, doing something right now, like playing Minecraft or something. Um, and the fact that you were able to uh, really carve out some time out of your busy schedule to do the podcast here with myself and Uncle Nubs, we really appreciate it, buddy. So thank you. You're welcome. I can't, I can't wait to play Minecraft all day tomorrow. All right, great. Um, do you have anything you want to say to Uncle Nubs before we sign off? Um, Yeah. I just wanted to say that I really like the theme song. Do you really like what? The theme song. Well, a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know that Nubs actually crafted and recorded and, you know, the theme song was all him and Clay's a big fan of the theme song. Do you want to give your quick uh, kind of performance version of it? Two twins and an <laughs> thank you, Clay. Thank you. Welcome yes. to two twins and another. <laughs> Pretty much sums it up right there. Well, well done, Clay. Thank you again for joining us. And I've always said I'm really good at writing songs that are five seconds long. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of your, yeah, your yeah. specialty. Yeah. It's um, hey, Nubs, uh, really fun to talk about the Foo Fighters with you in an album that obviously, you know, in our heyday was one that was incredibly interesting and obviously a band that's lived on and, and one that uh, has really helped kind of keep rock and roll alive for, you know, for youngsters like clay out there and uh, enjoyed talking about it with you. Yeah, for sure. Me too. It's a great pick. And it is interesting that we've landed in one single year, three times. So Maybe one of these days we'll do an album that wasn't made in 1997. (laughs) Maybe we'll venture out and really get crazy. Thanks again to Seth for suggesting this. And thanks again to everybody for tuning in and, and subscribing to us and following us on the old Twitter and following us on, um, well, we're not on Instagram, buddy. Maybe (laughs) we should be. It's good. You know, we got a marketing guy over here. We should really listen to him, but, uh, but you know, Spotify and Apple podcasts and YouTube and all the different ways to, uh, to access us. 
Um, we really appreciate it. So keep the feedback coming, keep the conversation coming and keep the suggestions coming. Cause much like we did tonight, we are more than willing and happy to, um, to incorporate those into future episodes. So we will say au revoir here on two twins and an album. Take care y'all. Two that's about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour until then take it easy